200 Women, The Listening Ground, brought to you by Westpac as part of the 200 anniversary celebrations. I'm Felicity Duffy, Head of Women's Markets for Westpac. Episode 3, Life Stories. We all have stories to tell. The 200 Women Project found 200 extraordinary life stories from around the world. Listen as women talk about immigration, the physical challenges of being a girl, the civil rights movement and gender reassignment. People were shocked to find out that I was a firefighter. And um, one of the first things they always asked me is, well, aren't you scared? And I talked about this in my TED Talk because they couldn't square the idea that a, that a woman uh, was not only strong enough, which I think was the thing they thought that they were battling, but really what they couldn't quite understand was how a woman could be brave enough and I saw over and over again uh, people reacting that way. And I also began to notice that, my, that women in my life, my friends, they often said they were scared when, uh, when they were sort of trying to fix a dishwasher or they had to go to a party alone or um, you know they uh, were going to go swimming in cold water. They'd be like, I'm too scared. And that was just, that was a sloppy use of the word scared in my book, because for me, scared is you're running into a big fire and the truck doesn't have the roof open yet. And people are screaming, saying someone's inside. That's scary. But running into cold water to swim a little, that's not scary. And I I felt like women were really encouraged to feel fearful. And so uh, I started to really notice, and I noticed that girls, it starts really early, that girls start saying how scared they are. Then I started noticing that parents actually caution girls so much. And so the message that girls get at a really early age is that they're fragile, that things are overwhelming, they should be asking for help, and not getting outside their comfort zone. We tell girls to be more careful before doing anything physical. We say, be careful, or you might hurt yourself, or we discourage them. With boys, we don't do that as much. And that means that girls are raised already with this um, lack of self-efficacy and questioning of themselves. And yeah, so we're not encouraged to go out and be messy and loud. And I remember myself that when I was in grade school, so up until I was about 12, I, I was very boisterous. And the boys actually called me Loudmouth. That was like my, um, my nickname. They were, because I've always been very excited and passionate. Well, my voice in my high school years got tiny, tiny. And when I started acting as a teenager and then into my 20s, the sound people always had to say, speak up, Alexandra, speak up. And I didn't know how to, didn't feel authentic for me to speak up and speak in my, in my power. And I think a lot of girls go through that. They're told they're too much. My dad was a, a designer. He designed the Studebaker Hawk, the car, in 1955, the same year I was born. And so all my baby pictures of me naked as the hood ornament. Um, but I really admired him because um, he taught me how to see things beyond what they appear to be. He'd say, Ivy, you know, look at that, the way that light is connected. What else can you learn from that connection? How can you apply that? And um, he designed all kinds of things. And I really wanted to be like him. So as a little girl, I 
admired him. And when I think it was around college time, I said that I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And he looked at me and said, Ivy, marry someone rich and be a school teacher and have your summers off. And that crushed me um, because I felt like he was robbing me of my dreams. I, I now know he did that out of love because he didn't want me to have to suffer because he felt he had, it was not easy being a designer, but for me, I was crushed because I worked all these years observing him and wanting to be like him. And when he basically said that to me, um, I realize, and my mother tells me, that's the day I went into competition with him unconsciously. Because it was more around, I'll show you that I can live my dream. And so I, um, again, am grateful. Everything happens for a reason because um, that propelled me in this like fight or flight way that I may not have been propelled had he not triggered me like that. My first job um, out of university was at a publishing house, a, a magazine. And it meant a lot that I was paying my own rent and, and I was living on my own. I was proving my independence. I was 22 years old. And um, I was experiencing sexual harassment um, from one of the senior editors at the magazine on a quite ongoing basis. But it culminated to one day I was in my office and we were in cubicles, but they had doors, but no ceilings. And my back was towards my computer, the old fashioned big computers. And he came into my office and asked me to do something. And I was working on something for our senior editor, who's a woman, editor in chief. And I said, look, I can't do this right now. Please just leave my office. I'll get to you when I can. You know, please, I'll be, please, I'm a bit stressed. And he said, well, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to undress you. And I just sort of laughed it off and I turned my back to the door to him and went back to my computer. And the next thing I knew, his arm was around me and he unzipped my skirt. I was 22 years old. I was in a, my first professional environment. And I was mortified. When I went to my boss about it, who was a woman, she told me, and I, I swear to God, she said, oh, boys will be boys. And she shooed me, literally shooed me out of her office. And at that moment, I said, you know what? I'm going to law school. And I'm going to make a difference because I've got advantages. If I don't have a job, I could call my parents. I can go home. I've got a, I've got a, a university degree. I've got options. But there are so many other women out there who don't have the options I have. And I remember that moment. I literally said, I'm done. I, I moved part of I, And I couldn't quit because I needed to, to have a job. So I was able to move to another division. I had to move. He didn't have to go anywhere. He kept going and I had to move. But so many women are powerless. I was lucky enough that I could do something about it. And that was the impetus that I said, I'm going to law school. I'm going to be a professional and I'm going to make a difference for women. My story started really when at the fall of Saigon and my parents um, had no choice but to escape Vietnam. And the only way that they could do that was to build a boat and smuggle the family out to sea. We spent nine days out at sea and ended up in Thailand. And we spent a very difficult year in the refugee camp there. And in 1978, Australia finally accepted us. And coming to a new country where my father 
Um, I didn't realize this until later on when I asked so many questions. Why was my life that way? Why did, it, why did those things happen? And uh, discovering that he suffered terribly from post-traumatic stress disorder. So coming to a new country from the war and then coming to a new country with nothing, you know, no house, no job, no money. Uh, we didn't know the laws, the language or the systems. And then all the pressures that come along with that. And growing up in Australia, I guess my father had nowhere to dump his anger. Um, he started to um, dump it on his wife and later on his children. So growing up, I learned so many, so many lessons. You know, we started working when we were, I started working when I was seven. My father was an entrepreneur. He had a restaurant, a, an ice cream parlor, um, a video library. He also operated a driving school on the side. So we had a big taste of, um, or, or got to witness my father's entrepreneurial bug. Um, but the pressures of growing up um, in a very violent environment, mentally, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, but then being conscious enough to make the decision that the cycle will end at this generation and making the decision to not pass on that anger and, and that trauma to the generation of my children. I went to university, was fortunate to go there because my mother, one of the politicians she supported, gave her a choice whether to build a house for you or to send you to Aj as a Muslim. My mother said, no, I want you to help me to help my daughter to finish her education. So that's how I was able to get a scholarship to go to university. I started my career as an insurance executive. Then my mother died. I just came back from the UK. And I discovered I couldn't bury her because I was a woman. My f I had to look for my father to bring him to the village to make the decision to bury. By that time, I already had my son. I was living with somebody. And I had to get married the day of the funeral so I could give rights to this man who becomes my husband so that he could actually bury my mother. That's what changed my life. Because I said to myself, here is this man who left out years ago, went off to marry somebody else, had a son, but I had to look for him to bring him to the funeral, and then he had to take leadership. So the gender issue, and I just, from that funeral, I went straight to UNDP. I said, I need to know what is this. I was an insurance executive. I've come from the UK. I was earning my own money. I had my own car, but I couldn't because the culture and the tradition in my village did not allow me. That changed the course of history of my life. I went to activism. I started fighting for women's rights. And it was at a time when we had a military government. And then I realized I can't fight for women's rights in a military government. I have to swap to fight for democratic rights. So I took women into the streets, market women like my mother, and to get the military out of the state house, to take them back to the barracks. Well, I remember um, in 1994 when, when Nelson Mandela was inaugurated, um, the Afrikaner community was still driven by, um, first of all, that superiority complex. Uh, we didn't quite know how the new president or the new dispensation would influence or impact our lives. We were still very much kept together as a society driven by fear. 
Um, so fear was also the basis of, of, of apartheid. Um, it was, it was um, segregation because of the fear of being overwhelmed by the masses. So we verwoord uh, and these people uh, um, embarked on introducing law to make sure that we, we uh, maintain our superiority. So now that was gone. And the new fear was uh, how do this new dispensation now impact on my life? And at first we thought it wouldn't have any impact. Um, and slowly we, we still thought we had the, the, the army, the defense forces, the security forces on our side. So at that stage we pretty much still felt safe. Um, even though we had a new president, we thought, well, the world is watching. This is a great historical event, being having the first black president in South Africa. Um, the world is watching, so nothing would happen. But, you know, in, in that, just thinking that, you, you can hear that there was fear. Um, then in 1994, I applied for this job in his office, in President Mandela's office. I'm never thinking that I would have a that that I would even meet him as a 23 year old and coming from that racist background uh, you know conservative background having voted against the abolishment of apartheid the last thing you expect was that um, you know my life would cross paths with his and then he did he was he was he was leaving the office and I found myself suddenly you know faced with this man that uh, my people feared, still at that point. Um, we didn't know what to expect of him. And it was a revelation that day for me. Um, it was the start of a whole process of metamorphosis for me. It was a life-changing event. Um, he did exactly the opposite of what I expected. He extended his hand to me. Um, I felt very undeserving. Um, and I appreciated the gesture. Um, I felt respected. Um, and I, it was very undeserving. And we stood there, he spoke to me in Afrikaans, and I was very touched. Well, my name now is Rosemary Ann Jones, and I'm from Adelaide, South Australia. Uh, but however, I was born Robert Anthony Jones in Worcester in England, in the middle of England. Elgar country, very fond of Elgar. Uh, and when I, I grew up in England, I went to boarding school in Dorset, which I hated, it was a boys' school. The only good thing about that boarding school was the headmaster's daughter, whose name was Rosary. Guess where I got the name from? By that time, my gender problem was becoming harsher and harsher. I can't tell you how this thing runs runs right for your life. You know, you, you, your life gets ploughed up before your eyes. You can't think of anything else but, I'm not a guy, I'm a girl, why are you going to be a girl? But of course, if I'd gone to be a girl when I was 22, well, I might not have got my medical degree. If I had, I certainly wouldn't have accepted for gender, for, for specialist training. And I certainly wouldn't be selected by the Crown agents to go to the seats of Uganda. Not, I hope. So all of these things that I did, well, of course, got married and had children, too. I wouldn't have those either. So there's a whole swag of things <coughs> that I actually did have because I didn't make the change. You know, if you've waited for your first birthday party for 40 years, you know what it feels like. 
uh, and it felt like it felt gorgeous. I could express myself as I wanted to express myself. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope it inspires your thinking today and maybe even your actions tomorrow. Westpac is very proud to have supported 200 Women, The Listening Ground. For the past 200 years, Westpac has continued to stand side by side with the women of this country. We believe wonderful things can happen when we come together, listen and learn from each other. We created Ruby Connection, our online networking platform for this very reason, and we invite you to join us at rubyconnection.com.au.